I think we could do this every week, don't you? This is quite comfortable, thanks very much. My, I'm comfy, yeah. My name's Steve Campbell, those you don't know, I'm the senior pastor here at C3. My wife and I have been leading this church for 23 years now, man and boy. And I have to say to you, one of the inspirations to us in our journey has been Paul Scanlon, who I'm interviewing this evening. He has been uh, a man in the nation that's been ahead of many others, and therefore, in all that he did in building a church there in Bradford, the size of it, the excellence of it, the sound of it, the teaching that was there, was an example in the nation. And we are so, so grateful, Paul, for what you did, what you're doing, and we really do appreciate you and your ministry. Paul has transitioned and brought change, and even that, and the way he's handled that, is something that needs to be learned from, because there's a lot of transition going on in the nation right now, because in case you haven't noticed, everyone grows older, and things change. And a lot of churches haven't handled change well. And whole churches have been decimated and movements because of wrong positioning and transitioning of leaders. And it's happening at this stage where we are. We're described, by the way, in case you don't know, as sociologically, as new churches. Now, we've been around kind of nearly 40 years now, so I don't know when that new term stops. But it does mean that they've come, our kind of churches have come to particular uh, stations on the journey that need handling carefully. And again, Paul has pioneered a way on that. So I'd like you to welcome Paul Scanlon, and we're going to ask him some questions tonight. Come give him a big round of applause. All right. Are we on? Hello, yeah. hello. You think we've got enough water here between us? <laughs> We'll be out of here before midnight. We're going to be well hydrated, me and thee. <laughs> Great. Now, many of you may not know Paul's background and story. And so my first question to you, Paul, would be to let these good people... But trying to pretend we're in... I don't think we'd be drinking water in our lounge, but uh, let's pretend we're in our lounge. And tell us a little bit about how you came to Christ, how you came into leadership and the journey involved there. If this was our lounge... That TV is already too small, <laughs> from a male perspective, that is. Um, Fifteen years of age, when I gave my life to God, I still, 40-plus years later, don't know why or how I was open to that idea, because my family are unchurched and non-Christians, uh, Eight of us in our family, uh, six kids, mom and dad. Uh, the school teacher that came to the school to teach was a guy called Kerry Jones, who you and I know, and maybe one or two old dinosaurs and last of the Mohicans <laughs> here may know that name. And Kerry was teaching, and in those days, religious education, RE, was compulsory. Yeah. So we were in there. We hated RE because the teacher prior to Kerry was so bad at teaching. Uh, confirming to me that the subjects we loved most at school, we didn't love them because of the subject, we loved them because the teachers taught it so well and made the class experience memorable. And the subject came alive because teachers that taught it well, and Kerry did. 
And Kerry would share his faith with us because we had no interest at all in RE and our class was famously riotous during RE. And the corridor was bedlam as we were all shouting and throwing stuff at each other. In RE, it was our time in the week and it was known in the school would be a riot. We were out of control. Kerry came in, realizing with no interest, sat on the edge of the desk and started reading to us from a book called Run Baby Run. Story of Nicky Cruz, yeah. a gang member in New York. It was about sex and violence and killing. Yes. So we loved it. All of us that came from the council estates, that was our life anyway. So we loved the fact that he connected with us through something other than the curriculum. And I don't know why I showed particular interest beyond the average. And I came to Christ in a school corridor at 15. I got baptized in the spirit a few months later in a classroom with Kerry. He'd be in jail now yeah. with all the, you know, multi-faith expression thing now and teachers having to not been seen to be trying to influence us, uh, especially with religion. But those days it was pretty cool and it was okay. And then I started attending a church in town, uh, an Elim, an, a Pentecostal church, Elim Pentecostal church, where I spent the first few years of my Christianity, and kind of the rest is history. Uh, so still to this day, I'm the only one in our family that is a Christian. And, uh, and what was the journey then into leadership? Because you, you said you're here in Pentecostal, but you didn't stay there long, uh, seemingly. And how did you get into leadership with Abundant Life Church as it was? I think it was organic. I don't ever remember being called, people talk about being called by God. I don't remember ever being called by God, so I'm still not sure I am. <laughs> um, but to me, it was just an organic journey, I suppose, of being available and being willing to have a go at stuff. And I think I figured out early on that I was good at talking uh, and I could communicate an idea. It wasn't called preaching back then, I don't think. But, and I figured out that I should maybe try and do more of that if I had opportunity. So in small house group settings, we called them then. Uh, I would share, you know, scripture now and then and talk. I enjoyed that. Um, so I think I kind of organically developed into people giving me more opportunity, finishing up in front of people like this and talking. I didn't have a badge or a label. Nobody called me pastor or leader. I was a salesman uh, working in sales for a few years, and then the pastor of the church asked me if would I be interested in going to Bible college, our own at that time. I would be maybe 23 or four at that time. Um, and so I said yes. I thought it was a great opportunity. I completely forgot to ask him, did it pay any money? Because I was doing well as a salesman. I had a job. I got married at 16, okay? I had three kids by the time I was 20. Uh, wow. Charlotte, our oldest daughter, some of you know Charlotte, was five months old when we got married. I was 16, Glenda, 17. Then twins came, in case you're trying to do the math on three kids before 20. Then we had twins. So um, I had a crummy job because I just left school, got a job in it, laboring as a builder, carpet warehouse, 18 quid a week, uh, 20 quid if I worked on Saturdays. Uh, lived in a back-to-back -back outside toilet. Some of you are like, what? Someone else should be in jail. <laughs> they were common, you know, 
in our part of the country back then, £2.50 a month rent. I remember a riot when the landlord put the rent up, 50 pence a month. Wow. It was like we were protesting with placards, you know. Um, so I thought, we're just stuck and we're trapped. And in my early 20s, I had this epiphanal moment that was maybe a spark of leadership in me, I don't know. We lived in a council house. And in those days, council houses were painted blue, green, yellow, blue, green, yellow, blue, green, yellow. What no one told you is the color you walked into was your color for life. Ours was yellow, and I'm talking bright yellow. One morning I opened the curtains, there's a council painter painting our house bright yellow. And I was so fed up on my life by this time, feeling trapped, three kids, my wife and I, all of our youth gone as it were. We were up to our neck, we had no money, no resources, no car. And this was before disposable nappies, all you people that think you've got it tough now. This was terry toweling, nappy time. The stuff we put those nappies in, now somebody will be in jail over. It was like stuff you see on Breaking Bad. This stuff was toxic. And our house was like a Chinese laundry for years. And we were broke and it was like a dead end and I was so fed up with my life. Then, insult to injury, a guy painted my house bright yellow and he did the worst thing he could have done. I opened the curtains on the morning, he's on the ladder painting my house and he went like this. Winked at me, like he's doing me a favor. And that just tipped me over the edge. And the incredible Hulk woke up inside Dr. David Banner that was putting up with all this stuff and I turned to my wife and said, that's it, I'm done. I'm so fed up with this life. I'm done with this. This guy's painting my house. I don't want it painting. I don't want yellow, but I have no chance. I can't, even, I can't even decide the color of my house. And she said to me, well, what are you gonna do about it? Like all good wives do. I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna change my job. I'm gonna get a job that's in keeping with my strengths. I'm gonna start selling stuff because I can talk. I might as well talk for a living and flog stuff while I'm doing it. <laughs> then I got a car. We never had a car. Salesman, car. I'm like, yes. And that year, I changed my job, got a job selling, got the car. We saved 5,000 pounds in the first year. None of our family ever had savings. Year two, we bought our first ever house. No Scanlon had ever owned a house, ever. Had ever owned their own house. All of us had rented, lived in council houses all of our lives. And I think that was a big shift for this leadership take charge of your life thing, I look back now, and it was pivotal and a massive shift in our lives. And I think I followed that through in the church world then. We've known each other, like we worked out this morning, 30 years. Yeah, I think so. We should should see other people. If we did. So I've only ever known you, I didn't know you prior to the bit you've just described. I didn't know you then. I've only ever seen you as a church leader pioneering, ahead, strong. And, and if there's one word that I would have used of you, it would have been courageous. I remember, just to let you guys know, sitting in a meeting where we were in the network that we were in, which was very controlling. In fact, what used to happen was we'd have meetings with leaders together and someone would raise an issue that was maybe against what the guys had said at the front. And then the next time you met, those people that had raised the issue weren't there. And the phrase we used to use was they'd gone back into teaching or something like that. They were and murdered. <laughs> we thought, what, where have they got? And I remember the guy who led the network, 
What he tried to do to show that he wasn't that controlling was he used to let different people chair the meeting. And I remember you, because this was a, a deep breath went it round the room. Yeah. You stood up and you said to this guy, I won't tell you his name, but it began with B and ended with Rin. And, and he said uh, to Rin, um, Rin, you've got to remember, wherever you sit is the chair. And everyone in the room went, because you didn't talk like that to Bryn. And we were, you weren't being disrespectful. That was the truth. Sure. It, there was no other way he could operate. <clears throat> Where did that courage to be so decisive, precise, and that's the other thing I love about Paul. In his language, he's precise. Where did that come from? I think it started as cheek in my youth and audacity. And I think it started with uh, an innate resistance to status quo things that I knew weren't working. I've always felt like the boy in Han Christian Handerson's story of the emperor's new clothes. I've always felt that I am the one that has to say, hello, the king is in the altogether. This isn't working. No. This is crazy. I think I track that back to when I was 14, 15-ish, the careers advisor came to our school. This was in the days of 11 plus. Some of you in here, maybe three of us, remember that. <laughs> I failed 11 plus, went to secondary school. Careers teacher came with his annual visit and asked us, what do you want to do for a living? And I said to him, I want to be a fighter pilot. And he laughed as if to say, that's not an option for you idiots. That's an option for the grammar school kids. It was implicit in his look at me when I said, I want to be a pilot. So then he said to me, what does your dad do? The moment he said that to me, I knew whatever I said, my dad was a coal miner. I knew whatever I said next, he would say to me, well, maybe your dad can get you an apprenticeship. And he said, what does your dad do? And I said to him, my dad is a serial killer. Because I thought, I know what he's going to say next, because he's in a script. <laughs> I knew he couldn't care less about us. He probably hated his job himself and didn't care about us and just said, what does your dad do? And I would have said, a coal miner. And he'd have said, let's see if your dad can get your job at the pit. And I thought, I'm not playing this game. It was one of my first experiences of butting up against what I would call institutional limitations right. on our lives. Right. And I was just cheeky and rude, I suppose. He would have said, and when I said my dad's a serial killer, I knew he couldn't then say, maybe we can get an apprenticeship. <laughs> and I look back at that, and I, I think it came from this uh, rebellious resistance, whatever you call it, to this status quo, to business as usual, to control that I kind of felt wasn't working. And I think that thing with Brian, I remember that day clearly, I think it was a continuation of that in a more developed form because I had several other scenarios like that behind the scenes. I remember him saying to me once, you wouldn't be in ministry if it wasn't for me, meaning I've protected you from all the guys that are against you mm -hmm. in the team that are in his ear about me. And I was driving him somewhere 
I'm the like the disciple, he's my coach and mentor, my father in God and all that stuff. But he said to me, you wouldn't be in ministry if it wasn't for me. And I said to him, no, Ben, that's not right. I wouldn't be in ministry with you. I'd still be in ministry, I just wouldn't be with you. Unknown to me, he read into that that I had some plot to take the church away from him or do my own thing. And I wasn't aware that he would read it as that because I just felt it was important for me to, cl to stake my little ground and put my barriers out and say, that's cool, but I don't think that. And I think I've always had that from early teens, I think. In your, um, what you do now, which is traveling a lot, doing communication masterclasses, mentoring leaders, speaking, you've been this, this weekend speaking into uh, some CEOs and such like, I believe. Um, one of the phrases you use is growing big people, is that right? Yeah. Why do you see that as so important? And when did that come into your life? Where, where was that revelation? This is what my life call, if I can say it in that way. You said you never had a call, but life's purpose. 1997 through 2000, our church went through a massive period of reinvention. We were 25 years old, a generation of comfortable and settling, and our church was dying and turning inward, but no one knew it. Our church had a terminal illness but no one knew it because we were still having a great time in church and we were worshiping and praising God and you know all that stuff was great and so I realized not every box you die in is shaped like a coffin some of them have ribbons and shiny paper on called having a great time in church and no one knows we're all dying whilst being totally irrelevant to our community we were having a great time and I got disturbed and concerned about the fact that nobody seemed to notice we were turning inward. And I began a journey, I wrote a book about it called Crossing Over, of the reinvention of that 25-year-old church. Long story short, half the church left in two years. We were then about 700 people and uh, 300 plus people left in two years. Good people, not bad people. When bad people leave a church, it's easy because you're glad they've gone. When good people leave, it's more difficult. Good yeah. people take people with them. Good people talk. Good people don't leave once, they leave a thousand times. So they left physically, but then they don't leave in contact with people. They're always calling people, having them around for dinner, socializing with the people that stayed. And it gets contaminated and messy. Some of them start their own things in town. So what I mean by people don't leave once, they leave a thousand times, is they take years to leave and get out your hair. Um, and when good people leave, people think the pastors are hiding things. Because they have influence and they're good people. These were good people. 300 of them in two years. I started running buses into the council estates, bringing people in. So I replaced all these mature Christians that we really needed to stay and help us reach the poor. I replaced them with really scoundrels from the worst council estates in the country. These people came, couldn't read or write, many of them, had no growth ethic. Uh, they were third generation unemployed people. Granddad didn't work, dad didn't work, they didn't work. Living off benefits, in high crime areas, drug dependent, all this stuff. I'm busing 500 a week in. I looked at them every Sunday when we got them and I thought to myself, I'm gonna have to rethink what I talk about here. I'm going to have to rethink even my language because these people don't have a clue 
what we're all doing here. I think it was then that I shifted from what I'd done for 25 years, which was what I call growing the church, to growing people. I don't think pastors are called to grow the church. I believe we're called to grow people. Growing the church is when we're trying to get more people in, we're trying to get more numbers, trying to get more money out of you all, we're trying to get more volunteering, we're trying to get more people in small groups, and whilst all those things are good and right because that's what we're all trying to do together, if it's the leading edge of what we do, I think what we finish up doing is we use people to grow things, and we use you to grow our vision, but we forgot to grow you. So a typical outcome of that would be you tithe on Sunday, but you're a stingy, tight-fisted person rest of the week. You always forget your wallet when you're out, <laughs> but you tithe. So because you tithe, you consider yourself to be generous and you claim all the promises of being, you know, a sower and reaper. So you're generous in your tithe, but you're not generous in your lifestyle. That's a massive fail, but we've called it a great success. In other words, we were, we were breeding people that were good in church, but they were not good in life. So we produced what I would call churchians, not Christians. Hmm. People good in church, but not good in life. So you would be had your hands in the air, in the presence of God, crying on Sunday. But then you can't get out of bed, show up anywhere on time, get on with people, stay married, keep friends, pay your bills. Always sick, always problems, bad attitude, not a team player. We didn't care about any of that, you know, gossiping, all that stuff, we didn't care. But if you showed up smoking a fag, we would send you to hell. But if you were to gossip, no one would speak to you. And gossip would kill the church far quicker than a fag will. So I think back then I thought, I need to grow these people. And I need to think, therefore, what do you need? And I came very basic. And I started to start from scratch. In 1999, 2000, I went back to the basics of, I need to grow people. So people would say to me years later, your church has grown, it's huge, it's thousands of people. How did you do it? How did you grow the church? I said, that's just it. I didn't try to grow the church. I decided to grow people. And I thought, if I can grow you, and you and you and you by talking about things that matter and in a way you understand, I think if we grow you to be a generous person, I think the church will benefit financially, but so will your life too. I think if we grow you to be a team player, I think if we grow you to be happy, and to take initiative, and to think outside the box, and take risks, and step out and do things. I think if we grow you to be confident, I think confident, big people have a larger social circle, are more interesting. And I think if we grow that kind of people, I think the church should grow. That's what happened. So what, what happens with a lot of pastors is, we're ordinary people that have our insecurities, and therefore sometimes to try and assess whether they're being fruitful, they will count bums on seats and dollars or pounds that are coming in because that's easy to count. Right. You've mentioned very practically a couple of areas there. I want you to expand on that. You mentioned generosity. You mentioned not getting out of bed but be lifting up the hands. What else did you do? Because I'm trying to say, how do we measure that we're growing big people? There are two great examples you've given, but give us, give us some others. It's more difficult to measure, which is why pastors don't like doing it because I can get the statistics 
of how many people were in church today and how much money you gave, text to me by the end of the day. So my dashboard of the vehicle of the church, my dashboard that tells me how well we're doing is easy and text to me. But if I decide I want to grow you, you can't text that to me. So what we had is we have got statistics that tell us we're growing financially and we're growing numerically, but it tells me nothing about whether you're growing. And that didn't seem to matter. And around the world, people have got drunk with those numerical statistics that tell you nothing. So you can have a large church numerically filled with pygmies. And if you put a pygmy on top of Mount Everest, he's no bigger. And what we've done in the church is we have put small people and we've attached them to big ideas and big visions. And the gap between people's internal smallness and the big thing they're involved in is I think where all our problems occur. That's where the low morale is, the burnout is, that's where people feel used and taken for granted. That's where people get stressed and frazzled and fed up and in that gap because we forgot, we forgot to grow the people. Hmm. So what I did was I increased, my, I increased my intelligence of let's find out what's happening out there. And I get a report about this couple or that guy and how they've had a, a little mini win in their life, because when the guy came, he's a down and out on the streets when we found him. Then I hear Jim that came to us from the streets six months on has got a job. No one knows that about Jim, because that's not reflected on the dashboard that we have made important to us. So I would say, hey, here's Jim, and I'd put Jim on screen, usually, because getting him on stage was a disaster. So I'd get Jim on screen and I'd have people tell his story while we filmed him. We figured out how to tell stories well. Yeah, yeah. I'd do things like that. And I did thousands of those. Right. And it, it wasn't a conclusion. It was just a win on the way. Jim may quit church next month, may never see him again. I knew that. We all knew that. But it was, it was a win right now in Jim's life. And I knew that I should tell a story whether or not Jim turned into Mother Teresa or not. <laughs> Great. I should tell the story whether Jim yeah. became a lifelong member and became perfect like the rest of us or not. I felt Jim's story in this moment was what we were all about. So I didn't get afraid anymore of telling a story about a prostitute that we'd reached and reach hundreds of them that had come off the streets or I, I did this several times, I would celebrate life changes in prostitutes that were still on the streets doing prostitution. So they're not, they're not a win yet in Christians' minds, but the fact that she'd come off drugs, that she was spending less time on the streets, that she wanted to get to rehab, but she couldn't yet break that habit. I'd tell the story a lot earlier than others would. Because I think in the church, we, 
we are addicted to simplicity and we have no stomach for complexity. And when you're growing people, it's complex, it's messy, it's not black and white, and the older you get, the more you realize mm -hmm. there's a lot of gray in life. Absolutely. Far more than 50 shades. <laughs> Don't go there. And we have no theology. <laughs> we have no theology for gray. We can't worship a God that's gray and a God that has no opinion about it. And so we have no theology for bad things happening to good people. All we put on screen is those that got healed of cancer. Yeah. And there's people sat there watching it who didn't get healed, who lost a loved one, whilst we're putting all the yay on screen. And it bothered me greatly. What do we say to people who didn't get a breakthrough? What do we have to say to them? Is the God we represent so tidy? Is he so narrow and so fragile that he has nothing to say to you that didn't get a breakthrough? Can't we figure something out that helps us navigate life through gray and tragedy and no breakthrough coming for you? So these hundreds of people all came a complete mess. And so I thought we have to get really under the skin of what's happening to measure what's going on. Okay. And so all of these stories, and I loved it, and the stories were a hoot and ridiculous and messy. And I just think it, all of this stuff completely changed the culture in our church. I think of Tim who came to us from jail, biggest drug dealer in town in jail. We reached him, reached his family, left jail, came to our church, started a business because being the biggest drug leader in town tells you one thing, He's a leader. <laughs> and I thought we could do with that in our church. So when Tim came, I said, Tim, you're obviously a great leader, biggest drug dealer in town. Don't stop being a leader. Just switch it to our church. Uh, so he did. He started a building business. Business took off. Tim became very successful, wealthy, became the biggest giver in our church from his building business. Now every church wants Tim. <laughs> Um, Nobody wanted him when we found him, but another success story that we measured and told people about. One thing, again, you know, <laughs> sounds like I've really been watching you all the time, and I haven't. We've lost contact and then made it again. But I've always admired in you the ability to have a soft heart but a thick skin, um, if I can say it in that way. Jesus said, you know, you're supposed to be as wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Modern analogy people have talked about having a soft heart, heart of a dove, but the skin of a rhinoceros. And, and you seem to be able to have kept a heart soft for people. So you want to grow people. It's about people. And yet you've had some major criticisms come your way. I've heard them. I, I know. But you apparently, and I realize perceptions can be wrong, you shrug them off and move on. Is that true? And how have you developed that soft heart and thick skin? If it's an accurate question. Yeah, in the 90s, I, I, I'm not one of these pastors or people that get hurt all the time. Some of you get hurt all the time. <laughs> this is your fifth church in five years because you get hurt. I'm not a hurty kind of person, you know. I've never been like that. Coming from council estate, e-bargum, trouble at mill world. <laughs> We don't hurt easy up north. So I think there's some of that in my personality and makeup. But in the 90s, that crossing over thing, 
a guy in the church that you would know well, uh, wrote a letter to our leader about me behind my back. I didn't know about the letter. Next thing I know, the leader that's over the church that got the letter about me is now confronting me about a letter I haven't seen with stuff in it I don't know that's there. In other words, he completely believed everything in the letter without asking me. And I, I got, because one of the things in the letter was people in the church don't like Paul. They don't like his preaching. A lot of us feel this way, which I've come to realize since is usually about two and a half people. And one of them's not sure. <laughs> a lot of us feel this way. And I, I got, I, I think looking back now, I got hurt. And I got nervous and intimidated. And I thought, if they all feel that, I won't preach. And I said, I didn't preach for three months for fear of who these people are that are sat there looking at me, who resent it, who are unhappy. And I got hurt. And I was about two months into that mess I got myself into, that sense of betrayal this guy had done to me. And my wife and I went to a couple's house in the church one night for dinner who knew nothing about my private struggle with this. And we'd had dinner and then we sat down uh, in comfy chairs and the lady of the house left the room, came back in with a bowl of water, knelt down, took off my shoes and socks, started washing my feet. How weird is that? I was so uncomfortable with this and I'm like, ooh, what is this? She didn't say anything, didn't explain anything. I'm like, oh, and I'm really uncomfortable. And she's washing my feet and I'm like, ain't coming here for dinner no more. <laughs> and she looked at me and said, I don't know why I'm saying this. I don't know why it matters or if it's accurate. But she said, I just feel God saying to you, you need to have skin like a rhino but a heart like a baby. She said that to me. I thought, you could have told me that without doing my feet. That's <laughs> what I'm thinking. <laughs> then she got the ball, walked out, came back in with dessert, like nothing had happened. <laughs> the gift of that to me was that I had been praying for two months about this guy that wrote the letter about me. I'd been praying for two months a prayer like this. God you need to kill him. Because God does kill people. In the Bible, God killed people. So I'm thinking, it's an option. <laughs> so I put a contract on him. In prayer. Yeah. It's just clarifying. God, kill him. Kill him. There were people in town, by the way, that would have helped me with that. <laughs> Coming on our buses. But, um, so... My, my point was, my way of handling that was, we gotta get these people out of the church. We gotta get these people out of our lives. God's way of handling it was, you'll always have these people. So toughen up, the answer is, toughen up, get a thicker skin, but don't allow that to harden your heart. So that combination of a tough exterior where stuff bounces off these days, but keeping a soft heart, from that night on, I tried to get better at that and be intentional about that. Right. And then when 300 people left in two years, I mean, talk about thick skin. <laughs> I'm like, see, I, got, I just got so blase. Yeah, yeah, whatever, see you later. I got like that about it, which I think was great. And a lot of pastors need to figure that out. 
And I came to the conclusion, the church is like a bus. People get on and people get off. And when people get off the bus in town, the bus driver doesn't park up and cry. <laughs> like pastors do. He just keeps driving because his job is to drive the bus to the destination on the front. That's his job. That's why he's employed. That's my job. So I figured out some people just need to get off the bus. And the sooner they do, the better. Because some people who need to get on our bus will never get on until some people get off. Because you don't want new people joining this church and sitting next to a person in the church who's a nightmare. You want them to get on the bus and sit next to a great person who's all in. And, and I knew we had a lot of people on the bus that should get off. And do you think that same principle applies into other contexts other than church? So you mentor into business and such like? Does that same principle carry through? I think so. I think everybody in business needs to figure out where everybody belongs. Relationships are spatial. Everybody belongs in a space. And a spatial miscalculation can be as bad as the wrong person. And so I think in church life and in business and team building, you've got to figure out what's your sweet spot? Where do you belong? And a book I read, a secular book, a corporate book called Good to Great. Mm -hmm. A book called Good to Great is about taking businesses from good to great. Mm -hmm. One of the keys in there was, he said, business is like a bus. You've got to get the wrong people off the bus, get the right people on the bus, then get the right people in the right seats on the bus. Mm -hmm. So I have, moved, I have moved staff around four or five times rather than get rid of them right. until they found their sweet spot, then they stayed there. Yeah. So yeah, and some staff had to go. Um, so I think in business, we're always also navigating the comings and goings of people because we want the best people in the best roles in order to grow because the company can't grow any bigger. This church can't grow any bigger than you are. Right. That's a book by Jim Collins and those of you that don't yeah. know the author, it's a great book. Yeah. Carrying that theme on, but coming, it, coming to a, more of a, a, a recent times, um, you transitioned the church, so it's, it's this getting off the bus a little bit here, uh, to another leadership. Uh, Bill Hybels reckons that most pastors uh, don't transition the church, and I think this is very accurate, for two reasons. One is their identity is so wrapped up in that church. You, you separate them, their identity out, and this can be true in business practice as well, that they can't let it go. And the second is they're not ready financially, so they stay too long because they've just got to keep getting a paycheck. Right. You transitioned to what I consider reasonably young, because you're only 59 now, so let's reveal that. There should have been a gasp then yeah, yeah. of, no, yeah. he can't be that old. But if I have to mention it, it's already lost. <laughs> so six years ago, was it, you transitioned? Yeah. What brought that about? And how did you handle those security issues particularly? And what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Because we all want to be purposeful and the church can be quite all-encompassing. I think, first of all, I've never felt called to be a pastor. Okay. And I don't think most pastors are. I think we use that language, which itself can hijack you. Mm -hmm. Because if you feel God's called me to stop pastoring, you kind of feel you're violating your call. I didn't have that baggage. 
I felt called to help people. That's all. I finished up doing it as what they call a pastor. But I didn't feel I was called to pastor. I felt called to grow people, help people. So if I'm doing it, as, that's why now I don't feel that I have to stop doing that. I just do it in a different way. I don't need to be a pastor to get out what's in me. I'd figured that out. So I didn't have that attachment and identity like some guys do. I wanted to let go of the church in my 50s because for several reasons. One, I want who I hand it over to not to be old. So if I hand over the church in my 70s to the next generation, they're already in their mid-40s. They're too old to hand over to. We should be handing over really to 30-somethings, I think. So me in my early 50s, handing over to the 30-somethings made sense. The other reason I wanted to do it in my 50s is there's other things I want to do in my life without pastoring and beyond pastoring. I'd figured out, this is, this is again why pastors cling on too long. Pastors do not figure out what their transferable skills are. This is why to think I'm just a pastor is not good. My transferable skills were communication is mm -hmm. one of them. So I thought I can be a communicator without having to do it in church. Mm -hmm. I'll still do it in church, but I could do it anywhere. So I'd figured out I can make a living from my gifting without needing a salary from a church. I'd figured that out. So I was less afraid of letting go of the church because I thought I can still make a living from my gift, which is communication, which was my primary gift as a pastor, communication. And I wanted to do it in my 50s because I thought I'm young and fit enough to get on and off planes around the world, which is exhausting. And I didn't want to be doing that in my 60s when I might not feel as up for it as I felt in my early 50s. The leading edge of me doing it in my 50s, honestly, was 30 years in to pastoring the local church and all the dramas we'd probably been through to get to where we'd been, to all of that. I think coming into my early 50s, I became aware that I'm pretty bored <laughs> with all this stuff. I didn't feel it was the most challenging it. I just figured weren't even interested in most days. So I would be going into meetings saying to myself, I don't even want to be in this meeting. What am I in this meeting for? Saying the same thing to the same people for crying out loud. And I would get irritated myself about this stuff. And I just figured out, rather than me try to fix that, as you, know, you, need, you need a sabbatical, you're burned out, is what most people would say. I thought, I am burned out. I'm as up for it as I've ever been, but I'm not up for this stuff. So somebody else that loves all this should be doing it. I used to love it, but I don't anymore. That was the beginning of me realizing my boredom and disinterest were indications in me that I was due a life shift. So instead of seeing it as something to fix, I saw it as something to pay attention to and interpret accurately. I interpreted it as the beginning of the end of my pastoring was those things. Now, pastors can get a lot of that stuff at other times. Mm -hmm. doesn't always mean that. But I felt for me, it meant the beginning of a transition out. So I think all transition begins internally. But I think most pastors, and most people, by the way, do not have sufficient self-awareness to figure out what's going on inside them. So they ignore it. They plow through it which itself creates all kinds of 
-hmm. physiological, emotional problems because you continue to violate what your own soul is telling you about. I think that's brilliant. But we don't have that. How do we, time's going to go, but how do we grow self-awareness? Well, first of all, we have to break free of what religion's done to us all. Because I was raised with crucify the flesh, whatever that means. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, which suggests that whoever you are, you're not you anymore. And you've got to get rid of you and crucify the flesh and don't have ambition and it's not about you and don't trust your heart. I grew up with all that language. Well, that's bound to make you ignorant of who you are as a person. So what we had was we were very, we were very Christ conscious in a way that we all didn't need to be because Christ isn't that insecure. We were so God aware but we didn't have a clue who we were. Proof of that was, we were all, by and large, the same type of people. I knew that because the first person that came to our church with a mohawk was like the devil himself had walked in. Never mind when we started busting in all these down and outs and prostitutes and criminals and, and all the people that were different to us caused a meltdown in the church. Because we had not learned to celebrate difference, we had not learned to develop our appreciation of people and the difference that people bring and the interest of that. I think self-awareness, therefore, has to begin by you creating margin and space in your life to listen to your own soul that is shouting at some of you and you drive right through it, you go like this, la, 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 my life's too busy, I'm too busy, I'm... and you better learn to slow down and listen to yourself, because if you don't, it gets harder and harder to tune into that frequency, because your soul usually speaks on a, on, on, on a, a narrow band, and it usually is a whisper, rather than clamoring for attention. And I just wanted to get to figure that out. And I started reading a lot of books about it. If you, re if you saw my library now, you wouldn't know what I did for a living. <laughs> Which I would see as a compliment to me. Because a lot of Christian stuff is useless on this. And I wanted to develop my self-awareness. And since I haven't seen that, uh, I've enjoyed that. Because self-awareness is the beginning of the ultimate level of self-awareness, which is self-determination. In other words, so I said to the kids this morning about Saul with your strength, self-determination is that you now take charge of what you're going to do with your life because you have enough awareness to determine your own outcomes. So the career you choose, the friends you choose, where you live, what you give yourself to, is now all chosen out of an awareness that this is good for me because I've figured out who me is. So... I am still on that discovery, but I am aware that much of the church sees that as new age, sounds all scary to me, newsflash. God lives his life through you. Not in spite of you, not in competition with you, not beside you. He lives his life through you. 
So if you put your personality to one side and try and become this one-size-fits-all brand of Christianity, the world is robbed of what Jesus looks like through you because there is no such thing as one Jesus. If the seven billion people on the planet, there are seven billion Jesuses. Because I know something about Jesus, you don't, because of my journey. You know something about Jesus, I don't, because of your journey. All of that beautiful technicolor Jesus is lost to the church who are obsessed with the color beige. <laughs> wow. Time has gone, and I would love to ask you more questions on that, but it won't, time won't allow. So I'm going to ask one last question, um, which relates to the other thing that you do in relation to communication masterclasses. It, afterwards, in the coffee shop, yeah. if any of you want to sign up um, for a, a communication masterclasses coming up in London on the 18th of Feb, you can do that, and we've got a special deal, uh, which, and this isn't, don't think it's just for church leaders or in the church right. communication, it's in all kinds of spheres of life, and, and Paul will be doing that, and right. does that across the world. Again, I think one thing I've observed with you, and you just did it now, is you, you always find language to express, and you use creative language, like this morning, for those of us that were here, the centurion factor, that was a creative language that suddenly gives a power to some things that we've felt, and now you've put words around it and we can identify. So you are, you've been masterful in your communication in that way. So if there was one thing, you can't do your communication masterclass now because that's six hours. And it's not free. And it's not free, but this one is, what, what one big thing in regards to communication would you say to us to try and grab hold of in our own lives? The gift of communication done well, whether it's speaking like we do, singing, art, photography, social media, however you express your voice, the gift of it is communication done well gives you a language for your life. Everybody's life has a language. Most people don't know what the heck it is. So when you listen to a communicator, and as you're listening, you think, oh my gosh, I've never seen that. Oh, that so explains that to me. I get it now. And around the world, people would say to me when I would speak, which gave me a clue about this. You know, when you speak, Paul, it's like I came with this big knot inside me of, of the wire or wool, and it's like just sat there. But as you spoke, it was like it started to get unraveled and stretched out, and I began to understand where that fitted and how I should now think about that, and I began to get some kind of clarity about that knottedness I'd had for years. What they're saying to me is, you gave me a language to interpret my life to me. I think that's the gift of great communicators. I think it's our responsibility and the only way you can do that is that I have to learn to spend more time in your shoes than I do in mine. Everything I talk about, I start from your perspective, not mine. So if you've listened to me at all for any length of time, when you listen to me, you'll know I get you. And people will say to me all over the world, oh, it was like there was just me in the room. There was 20,000 people there. It was like just me in the room. 
It was like someone told you about my conversation in the car on the way to church that morning. That happens too many times for me not to think it's random. It's not random. It's deliberate. Because though I don't know you and I don't know what you're going through, I've spent enough time in the shoes of people to know when I say this, what will you say to you when I've said that? And I'll sit and think. What are you probably going to think when I've said that? And then the next thing I'm going to say is exactly what you just said to you. Then you go, ooh, he's in my head. What got Jesus in trouble is not what he said. It's what they said to them about what he said mm -hmm. that got him in trouble. Because there's two voices in here. Mm -hmm. There's my voice to you. There's what I'm saying to you. But then there's what you are saying to you about what I'm saying to you. And I figured out what that is. That gives me this massive connection with people. And connection is the holy grail of communication. That connection is because I'm in your shoes. I know what you're thinking in, in a good way. Not like I'm in, I'm in your head in a bad way to judge you because I'm not that kind of communicator. The church has got too many of them. I'm in your head and I'm on your side. So I will say something, and then typically I might say, you know what, you single parents in here, you know when I said that, you know what you thought is? It's another sentence or two. You know when I said that, some of you business people in here, what you thought is, I do it all the time without thinking now, but it's because I thought this doesn't sound like it does to her as it does to him, and I want them to know I get that. I want them to know I understand, and I break it down. I want to get better and better at that because I think I owe it to you before I say anything to ask myself, how does this land in your world and how can I say it better imagining I was you sitting there listening to it as a single parent, as a divorcee, as a person with cancer, as a student, as an ethnic minority, as an older person, as a person that's gone through failure or bankruptcy, how can I just put a little something on that that lets you know I'm on your side, I see you, I understand how this may sit for you. Communicators that do that, we love them to death because we kind of feel, wow, it was only another sentence they added on, but that sentence suddenly scooped us up and included us, and we kind of all felt connected with. Most communicators are too lazy to do that, especially in the church. Wow. We're going to leave it there. There was, there was a line that you need to tweet. The connection is the holy grail of communication. That's a freebie from the masterclass. That should be a quid each on the way out. I'm going to give you two minutes, and I want to pray for you for one thing. Are um, we flogging stuff yet? That's what I'm giving you two Thank minutes you. for. Two minutes to flog your words. Go on. This is my living now, please. <laughs> this is called zero gravity thinking. I mentioned it this morning. Astronaut in space for a year grew three inches because he had zero gravity to do it in. And this is about getting weightlessness in your head. God knows the church needs some of this. This is how I figured this out in Bradford. I got, I got zero gravity because what's stopping us progressing isn't what we don't know. It's what we do know and our attachment to it as it tethers us to business as usual. 
zero gravity thinking, how to get weightlessness in your head to get new ideas. This is called Communication Volume 1. It's the only thing I've ever done. The masterclass isn't taped or recorded or online. It's like bingo. You have to be there to win. So the masterclass is a live event. Um, but this is the only thing. This is about 65 to 8 minute tips on communication uh, for you in communication or feel that's a part of what you're supposed to be doing. That'll help you. 15 Revolution, one of my books. I've written, I think, eight books. I am an author, you know. Uh, 15 Revolution is about giving 15 minutes a day to help someone, notice someone, be kind to someone, be generous to someone, compliment someone. 15 Revolution, boom, commercial's done. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Scanlon. Let's stand together, can we? Lest you think we live in an ivory tower sometimes as leaders, and I do appreciate Paul's vulnerability and honesty tonight. I'd like you just to close by praying for your granddaughter. Yes, thank you. Um, his granddaughter is suffering leukemia, um, is going, undergoing chemo and treatment. What's her name? She's called Harlow. Harlow. She is uh, about three months short of two. She's our youngest grandchild, yeah. Okay. And we found out three days before Christmas that she has cancer, leukemia, so we appreciate that. Thank Let's, you. Can we pray for that as we finish? Yeah. Father, thank you for what Paul has brought this weekend. We are grateful. Grateful for his wisdom, grateful for his example, grateful for him. And we pray for his family, and particularly, Lord, for this little baby, less than two years of age. Thank you, Jesus. Touch her body. Yeah. We thank you for the medical profession. We thank you for the expertise. Yeah. Yeah. We are on the same side. Yeah, we believe right. that they can work with our prayers together to see this child come right through you, whole and healed. Mm. We pray for the family, pray for mum and dad, pray for yeah. the grandparents. Yeah. May they know the closeness mm. of God. May they know your support and the love of family and friends and brothers and sisters who even they don't know, even now as we pray, we ask that they would just be aware of our love and your love towards them. Bless them, we pray. And we look forward to a story that we will hear of the total healing and recovery of this child. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Again.